Welcome to Southbank Centre's book podcast, where you'll hear us in conversation with the people shaping arts and culture today. If you want to hear from some of the biggest and most influential names in contemporary literature, then you're in the right place. In this latest episode of the podcast, we're going to feature highlights from another great event in our 2019 autumn literature season for your listening pleasure. Just to let you know, there may be some strong language and sexual references. Good evening, and welcome to Southbank Centre's Royal Festival Hall. I am Debo Amon, Literature Programmer here at Southbank Centre, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Lenny Henry, Who Am I Again? From his time on Tiz Was to co-founding Comic Relief and his more recent turns on stage, Sir Lenny Henry has not only made us laugh, he has made an indelible imprint on British culture. With a career as long and as storied as Lenny Henry's, there are a litany of achievements and highlights I could mention. But there's one in particular that stands out to me. In 2005, the author Neil Gaiman published his book, Anansi Boys, a New York Times best-selling fantasy novel about, West, about the West African trickster god Anansi and his two sons. I was 17, and I loved that book. It was only this year that I found out that Lenny Henry inspired Neil Gaiman to write that book, as he told Neil Gaiman that there weren't enough black leads in ca- lead characters in, hor- in the horror genre. To me, that says it all both in his own actions and the actions he inspires in others, Lenny Henry has become a British icon deserving of the title. Both in his book, Who Who Am I Again? and tonight, he shares his story. Now, please join me in welcoming Sir Lenny Henry to the stage. I'm gonna introduce a really, I'm so glad he's doing this. He does everything else. I didn't think he was going to do this at all, but he does everything else. You know, I said, Rom, will you? And he was here. So please, will you welcome the legendary, the ubiquitous Ramesh Ranganathan, ladies and gentlemen. I'm just kidding. Thank you so much for accurately describing my desperation. It's such an honor to be doing this. Two black guys with glasses on stage. (laughs) At the South Bank Centre. And we're not playing world music. How cool is that? <laughs> Why has it got to be world music? That's the whole world, you know. I know, I know. This is a real honour for me because um, I would not be doing comedy were it not for you. You genuinely inspired me. I watched the Lenny Henry show. Growing up watching you. And I properly love this book. So uh, thank you. Comedians writing a book about their life is a difficult one because there's a certain set of... Well, you're dealing with the expectations of the person coming to read it. How did you approach this in terms of, like, you know, were you thinking this needs to be funny? Were you thinking I'm going to reveal... Because you, you do talk at length about your background in a way that I don't think I've ever seen you discuss to this level of detail. So what was your attitude sort of coming into writing this? My attitude was I've got a really... I've got a fantastic group of people at Faber Faber, led by Walter Donahue, and he basically sat me down and said, what kind of book do you want to write? You can write a funny book if you like, but I think a lot of people would like a truthful book, an honest book. And as Alexis Sales says, comedy's lying! And um, I didn't want to do a comedy's lying book. I wanted to do something truthful about my family and about the immigrant experience, you know. My mom came over here in 1957. She was chased down the street by local kids when she arrived pointing at her and asking her where her monkey tail was hidden. 
You know, when she went on the bus, people would wipe their fingers on her face and ask her why it didn't come off. And I think that it would be a disservice to her not to speak her truth, and also a disservice to me not to speak my truth. And I've been in writers' rooms where I've spoken about, you know, being hit by my mom and, you know, and all that, and being bullied at school. And comedians, we mine that stuff for comedic effect. And when I was writing this, I just thought, wow, every time I come to a bit like this, there, there is a temptation to write the joke, but actually I'm more moved by the truth of it. So it made me work harder at that. There's parts of this book that are genuinely very, very moving, and I got the impression reading it that wouldn't have been easy for you to include. So how did you feel about putting, that, putting that, all of that onto the page? It was tough because usually when you write a book like this, you wait for everybody to die. Do you know what I mean? I, 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 and I thought, I've got, I'm 61, I can't wait for everybody to die. <laughs> We're very long-living people in our family. <laughs> we just live a long time, and we look like we're 40 years old, and some of us are like 90, and everybody's like... <laughs> we're not going anywhere, so I thought, well, if I'm going to write this, I've got to write it now. And I, and I did... I did um, when we did Danny in the Human Zoo, for instance, that was interesting, because the way I, I did that was to try and put us in a parallel universe and make it all up, but include some things that were truthful and some things that were not. That was difficult for the family because suddenly the papers are on your doorstep saying, is that true about Lenny's, Lenny's dad? And my family were harassed by the press. So when I was writing this, I really had to take that on board. I thought, oh, if I, I've just got to write it. I've got to write it the best way I can in the most, most truthful way I can. I sent copies of the manuscript to my family I was joking about it before, and they all read it. And they all had things to say, but there was a lot of encouragement, which was very good. There was a lot of write what you think is right. Mm. There were some things about mom. Do you really want to share this stuff about mom? And I had to really think hard about it, particularly the stuff about beatings and all that kind of stuff, because there are, it is a trope of third world parenting that you beat your kids. And, but the, and the thing is, I was... I was criticized by a black journalist who said, you shouldn't put that out there. You know, you shouldn't go on and on about black parents beating their kids because it's just a trope. Because you talked about it on stage. You're just perpetuating a myth, yeah. But, and I, I agree with all of that, but the problem is it is my truth. I grew up with beatings and clartings and bitch licks. <laughs> and I'm gonna write about it. Do you know what I mean? There's no hiding place. Anybody who give me a lick or threw a shoe at me or hit me with a belt with the buckle end or smack my head against the wall with their fist, or kick me with their foot bottom. My mom hit me with a pan once. I don't even know why I'm not in hospital or in a home or something. She once threw a chair at me, and I ran up the stairs and ran around the corner, and the chair followed me. I still don't know how she did that. And it hit a pow, I said, you wretch. You had a unique position of being the, the most famous black guy on British television, right? And with it was that, me and Trevor McDonald. Right. <laughs> but with that comes the pressures of being a representative, I guess, and, and, and people uh, having expectations of how you represent black people in this country. 
How did you deal with it? Because obviously, you know, you talk about in the book when you went off to do the, the minstrel show and, yeah. and your time doing that. That was a misstep. <laughs> it um, wasn't my fault. Grown-ups were in charge and suddenly I was in the minstrels. Like, what? <laughs> what am I doing in this show? It's difficult to represent. You must know this. If you're a brown person on television, you are representing every brown or black person in the country. And they all want to see their story reflected back at them. And if you don't do that, they are pissed off at you. So the next time they see you in the street, they'll say, we don't talk like that, we don't dress like that, we don't eat that food. They're not even from where you're from. It's, it's why the diversity representation thing is important. It's why there needs to be more choice as far as seeing yourself on screen, because if you can't see it, you can't be it. And when, when there's only one show with a brown or black person in it, or one show with a female lead, or one show where there's people with disabilities, or one show where they talk about mental health, you, you've only got that show. It's why it's very difficult to play a black serial killer. Because everybody rings up and goes, oh, so you're saying all oh, black people are serial killers? No. <laughs> we don't want to deny our actors and actresses those roles, but when that's the only time you're going to see a black person, you know, in Broadchurch having killed somebody, you kind of go, oh, great. So there needs to be more choice, basically. That's why you need representation. But reading it, reading the book, I, uh, you know, because I, I sort of felt a bit guilty because I complain about getting racism on social media right, and stuff like that and people having to go at me every time you appear on TV you will get some racism on social media but you what you've experienced is was next level right? if I mean, there'd been Twitter when I was on the black white minstrels I wouldn't even be here <laughs> people would have just shut me down in two minutes but I mean it's a, it was an interesting experience and um, I, I had to deal with people in the street saying things I had to deal with critics um, saying you know Somebody called Maureen Patton said he shouldn't have done Tina Turner. He's, he's, he's got fat thighs. <laughs> and, uh, to be fair, a lot of people you know, I'm, You know I'm a bloke, Maureen. <laughs> got these big ass thighs for a reason, woman. <laughs> and, um, you know, but lots of people, you didn't do the Barbadian accent very well. And I'm, I'm from Dudley, that's why. <laughs> um, I remember one time I did feel bad. I was, I was at London Weekend Television just up the road and I was doing OTT at the time and I was doing Joshua Yarlog and he's the African impressionist from Zimbabwe who does impressions that all sound like him. And um, I, used to wear, I used to wear a grass skirt and have tribal, I don't know what was the matter with me, <laughs> tribal makeup on and a leopard skin thing around my head. And I said, Katanga, my friends, because I thought that was funny. And um, Chris Asante, who played Matthew, in Desmond's, stopped me in the, in the foyer LWT and talked to me for about an hour about why that was wrong. Right. And I was only 20 something and I really felt it. I still went back and did it the next week. <laughs> but for that moment, I felt the bitter sting of one of my peers, one of my black peers telling me off. And you need that, you know, I think if I'd had more people that look like me in the room, in the writer's room or in the, in the script editing room, maybe somebody would have gone, don't do that, that's patronizing or that's a stereotype or something. But there was nobody like that when I was coming up. Did you, um, with, with this book, or, I mean, I've read. I like I've, the way you keep bringing it back to the book, that's great. Just 9.99 at Waterstones, ladies and gentlemen. Listen, you I've, can get a Kindle, you can get a, you can get a, you can get a Audible. Audible, you can listen to it. Uh, no, I've just been told if I don't do this, my life's on the line. Um, 
No, I'm joking. I'm joking. All right. No, no, I'm joking. Um, how, how difficult do you find it? Because in the book, you talk about your mum reiterating to you about integration. Didn't you have this? Didn't your mum tell you that? Um, no, my mum was more concerned about my weight, actually, to be honest with you. Just sort of. <laughs> She just constantly... Went on about your weight. Yeah, just all the time, just... I, I Jamaican just... stop you in the street, you know, and tell you how fat you are. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> My mum would just be like... Len, you look, you're, you're getting big. <laughs> you're, but your mum did that to you. My mum's favourite line was, R you almost look nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh... Now eat this. <laughs> yeah. no, my mum just, you know, on the one hand, you're putting on a bit too much weight. On the other hand, you had plates of food that were this high. And the only way you could see each other at the table was to drill eye holes in the food. So you could see people while you were eating. Yeah, my mum like used to make like loads of sandwiches for me to take to school. Not for lunch, for break time, right? <laughs> um, and uh, I was such a fat kid, and I was eating, the, the, the teachers would see me eating these sandwiches, so they, they phoned my mum and said, have you seen your kid? I mean, they didn't, they, 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 didn't, they didn't say it like that, but they're just basically expressing a concern, like, you, you don't usually be giving that many sandwiches. My mum's genuine response, she told me to hide from my teachers when I ate my sandwiches. That was, that was... No way! <laughs> nah, man, we just got fed. We got fed. Mom would cook, there was seven of us, she'd cook for 28 people. We came home every day, there was big food. Even on Thursday when the money had run out, there was food on the table, too much food. It was usually pilchards and rice by Thursday. <laughs> and then on payday, there'd be big food, and then on Saturday, more big food. And she'd do this thing called Saturday soup. That's food getting a round of applause, you know. Yeah, look at that. And I talk about it in the book, it, it seemed to me like half a sheep put onto simmer at nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you don't put the hard food in till later. You have to wait till later. And then you simmer the meat until it's very tender. And then you put in the, the, the heart, the dumpling and the yam and the dasheen. And then, and then, then you put in the potato and then, and then you let it cook. And then by the time you get to six o'clock, it's delicious. And in a Jamaican family, you get this chirina, everybody, every family member, it's not a no, it's like your mum, you know, you yeah. don't get a normal soup bowl. I don't, don't think my mum understood what a... <laughs> she didn't understand what a normal soup bowl was. This thing would arrive like this. And we, we each got our own chirin, basically. You put, you put it down in front of you and, then the, and all the hard food would be piled up and then you'd eat it and you'd fall asleep till 10 o'clock afterwards. And what were you, you talk about uh, what you were like with girls and sort of... Terrible. Uh, getting, uh, you kind of, you, you're, you're getting famous at a very young age and you're sort of, you're growing up in the spotlight in a yeah, way, aren't you? Yeah, really uh, weird. What were you like, what were you like at that time, part, part well, of Well, I was growing up, I was spotty. I, I, I tried to have an afro, but it wouldn't work. So I did have an afro eventually, and when I wore platforms, I was eight feet tall. With the afro on the platforms, I'd walk into a disco eight feet tall, like giant man. And um, girls didn't want to go out with me because I, I was raggedy. Didn't have, especially the black girls at Sunday school, not interested at all. And they were really sexy. I don't know how they got away with it at Sunday school. But they'd be there singing the hymns and they'd be like shimmying. And I was all over that shimmying. I would be like trying to smile at them during the hymns. 
And they were not interested in me. And they were always, the, the church girls were always interested in the bad boys. Yeah, you sort of alluded to the Yeah, man, the they'd, be, they'd be in church going, Sunday school, Sunday school. Don't forget to attend Sunday school. And then when you went outside like at nine o'clock at night, they'd be with some rude boy, man. Some geese with his hand on his crotch and a switchblade and his hat on the back of his head. Cussing rass and smoking a spliff. Hang on, you were singing hymns this morning. And I think it's because they wanted somebody, you know, they, they, they wanted somebody like tough. Because them days, it was tough out there. You know, you used to like keep Britain white written on the walls everywhere you went and BNP and National Front. And they wanted a guy who could protect them. And the yard guys, they were tough, man. Guys, we had kids who came from Jamaica to our school in the fifth year. And they didn't mess around. If there was a fight, they'd just pick up a brick and go, and we go, no, we don't do that here. <laughs> we don't hit people with bricks here. We just fight with our fists, with your fists. Or you go and kill him with your fists. No, we don't kill people. <laughs> Honestly, this guy dressed like his dad with his hat on the back of his head was prepared to beat this guy's brains out. And all the Dudley kids were going, no, Christ, he's really too serious. <laughs> we're going to have to have a word with him. And, and they called it, them guys had yam and banana teeth, we had fish and chips teeth. <laughs> you have them fish and chips teeth, and they would open a, a bottle of Guinness with their teeth like, we couldn't do that, because we have fish and chips teeth. Brit British-born teeth. <clears throat> so it was, it was it, we had a different way of handling things, the British-born ones. It was but interesting. You, there's, a, you have a there's a photo of you in, a, in the book of, about around that kind of time. And you, it, in your caption for that photo, you talk about how you look and how you look so clean cut and you're smiling and you're presentable. Oh, is this 1978? Yeah, and, and then you make the comparison that that is not what black guys of your age were wearing at, no, at that time. No, not at all. And so you're sort of alluding to the fact that your identity was like a big issue for you, right? It was, which is what the whole thing, the book, it's called Who Am I Again? Because of the masks we wear when we're growing up, particularly if you're, if you're from an immigrant family. I was second generation Jamaican and my mum told me to integrate you have to integrate, otherwise you won't fit in. With the Dudley people, them integrate. You must heat their food, talk like them. Integrate, otherwise they will send you to prison. <laughs> Don't box them down, integrate. And I, I, I tried very hard to do that. And so I, I wore different masks, you know, you know comedy len, funny len, voices len. And when I was on telly, that picture's taken in 1978, and I look like a depressed 45-year-old club comedian in the picture. <laughs> I've got neat hair, I've got a toothy grin, I've got a ridiculous beige tuxedo, huge velvet bow tie, because this is what I'd seen people do, and I thought, I'll fit in if I look like this. And that was it. That's what light entertainment was like in those days. Um, everybody that was on television wore a tux, and sort of did jokes about their mother-in-law or about staying in a bed and breakfast with a busty landlady and all that kind of stuff. And I, I you know, even though I wasn't married and even though I didn't know what a busty landlady was, I told those jokes because I thought that's what you have to do. It took ages, it took ages to find somewhere that resembled even closely who I was. And people like Richard Pryor were the key, but it took me ages to be brave enough to abandon what I've been doing to fasten onto what I wanted to do, to look how I wanted to look. Because of integration, I'd made some 
I made some white friends. And um, all, all of the comedy stuff had come from them. The difference between my house and my white friend's house. Things happened in their house that never happened in our house. Like Mac would tell his mom, oh, leave me alone, mom. And I'd, I'd you know, he cheeked his mom. <laughs> he cheeked his mom. Do you know what I mean? And then he did this thing in, in the front room. They had a front room, right? And he, he, we'd sit in the front room watching Top of the Pops. And Mac would put his feet on the furniture. Literally, I've been looking at Matt going, are you insane? So I tried it. I went home one day, you know, and I... I woke up a week later in A&E. You can't put your feet on the furniture in the front. You can't even go in the front room in our house. You must never, ever go in the front room. And then what's... And there's nothing in there. You go in there. Just pictures of Jesus. And, and, and the gram, the big gram, that's so heavy they had to build the house around it. And, and, and the cabinet with the geishas on it. Did you have one of those? And the samurais. <laughs> and the, and the, little, the little things that mom spent all Sunday polishing. The little orangey things that were made of glass and stuff. The chalk dog. The blue thing that said, Christ is the head of this house. The unseen guest at every meal, which scared the shit out of me. Wait, so Christ is like the FBI, just lurking behind corners, watching you go to the toilet and everything? You, uh, Thanks, you, Christ. You damaged the chalk dog as well, didn't oh, you? Oh, Kay hit me with the chalk dog. My sister Kay doesn't play. I went in her room ramping, and I shouldn't have got in her room. I shouldn't have... I went in Kay's room, and girls have great things in their room. They do. Have you got sisters? <laughs> no. I got. I, listen, I had an elder sister, and I'd sneak into her room and bras and stuff and <laughs> high-heeled stuff. I'm sure this is where all the Beyonce shit comes from, but I got bras on my head and things in boxes, and you're opening it out, and it's like one of those face masks, but it's not really a face mask. It's take that off and the pants are different, they've got no space at the front, you try the pants on. <laughs> and they're really tight, the pants. I mean, how does she wear these? How does she wear these? And then she caught me, she caught me doing it. And there was this big fight. I still had her pants on as well, there was this big... There was this Popeye Bluto fight. We were down the stairs and it was like a cloud with the fists coming out of it, like in the cartoons. And we ended up in the front room. We didn't realize we were in the front room. And there was this big fight and Kay's, I used to, I used to be able to, I could handle myself against Kay, but there was this, this was too much. And um, I was winning and then she hit me with the chalk dog on the really, <laughs> You know that bit of your elbow that's really painful? It really hurt, man. <laughs> and I did that crying for ages. Then mom come home and she didn't care about me. What you doing in the front room? Why are you in the front room? That's what I want to know. And then um, I didn't get another beating, but uh, she told Kay off. And then she said, you can't go in Kay's room anymore, you know. There's women's things in the air. Should we kill you next time? 
I was in there the next day. You, uh, you experienced what you think was racism from... Uh, you've got a, a reading for us, haven't you? From oh, yeah. I've got to do a reading about this kid that lived next door to me. I was still little, and um, this is somebody I thought was my friend. I lived next door to this kid called Stephen. We were about eight, and uh, he was a white kid. And when you're kids, you don't think about that. You just want to play. He had everything all the toys you could possibly think of. Every single Thunderbird. He had a Stingray, a Johnny Seven. Do you remember Johnny Seven? It was like a, a, a silver-painted space rifle, complete with water pistol, red projectiles, and glowing lights. He had the Man From U.N.C.L.E. briefcase. He had the Batman outfit with the utility belt. He had endless Hot Wheels and dinky toys. I was there every day. Stephen was an only child and his parents spared no expense in trying to keep him amused. And I'd had several play dates with him. We got on very well. One day something changed. Because we lived so close, Stephen would often pop across, knock on the door and ask through the letterbox if I was playing. I'd rush to the door, open it and we'd be off like rockets. But then Stephen stopped coming round. Eventually I popped over knocked on his door, opened the letterbox and shouted, Stephen, you're playing. There was a silence and then I saw him approaching the door. He put his lips level with my eyes and then he went and he spat through the letterbox and told me not to come round again. I was very young and I didn't understand was covered in spit. Didn't understand what had changed. It broke my heart. But I carried on with my life, just without Stephen. And like I say, I was very, very young. I didn't understand then, but I, I know, I think I do. Stephen didn't even mention the color of my skin, but that's what it was, right? Of course it was. The point is, it wasn't his fault. One day he was playing with me, the next, Someone's told him not to, and he's gobbing in my eye. And I'd love to meet him again now that we're all grown up. And if I did, I'd shake him by the hand, I'd hug him, hold him tight, and I'd spit in his ear so hard it'd come out the other side. <laughs> I mean, we, even from the first time we met I, met, I think I met you at the BAFTAs the first time ever. And when you spoke to me, I, first of all, I was absolutely blown away that I was getting to meet you. But I thought you were a waiter. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember I asked you if, yeah, no, if I the did. soup was going to be yeah. here soon? No. Because you had a tux on and everything. Yeah. Because normally at those dudes, yeah. the only black people you see are the staff. Yeah. But you know what? It felt so touching to me that you asked for soup and not something like poppadoms, because that would have been. I didn't do that. Yeah. See, I respect Thank you me. as a brother. Thank you. Right on. And and you were very quick to sort of give me advice and support, and I know. Is that, that you terrible? That. Sorry. No, it's great. And you did that, and I know you did that with everyone. And whenever you get an opportunity to speak about increased diversity. 
you will do, and you and you you don't you haven't just rested on that. You constantly are talking about that. Did you? And for that, you feel like somebody that's very supportive to people coming through. Did you have people of colour helping you and being supportive to you when you were coming through when you started performing? I'll tell you who I had. Um, I used to I did a television series called The Fosters, and it was the first. Yeah. They're, better, they're getting better. They're <laughs> good. And uh, it was the first black family on television. And there were things wrong with it. What was right was it, with it was I was working with Norman Beaton, Carmen Monroe, Isabel Lucas, Sharon Rosita, Larry Mark, Rudolph Walker, Shango Baku, Val Pringle. I was working with all these amazing black actors who took the time to say, you should read these books, you should go and see these plays. They made me go to the theater. I was, I didn't, the only theatre I'd seen was Charlie Drake in pantomime. But these guys made me go to the Royal Court and the National Theatre and watch black plays, you know. And I went to see lots of plays. I saw, saw Black Mikado nine times. I saw Playboy of the West Indies. I saw Bubbling Brown Sugar. I saw all these plays. And I loved it. And Norman Beaton made me read books. And he also, just by being brilliant, standing next to him with cameras around you, he would do little gestures and movements and he'd just go, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. I just copied everything he did, basically, because yeah. I'm a mimic. And he was great with me. And it, Norman was a piece of work, by the way. Norman was a piece of work. You know, we used to go to a place called Gulliver's in Mayfair and Norman would come in. They're clapping you, Gulliver's. These, these people, they, you love venues. That's like your favorite. They're clapping venues. That's your favorite thing. You wait till I say crackers, man. They're going to lose their shit. So we used to go to Gulliver's and normally Norman would go to and he was a big man, you know, and he'd show up in Gulliver's and he would try and get a check cashed. <laughs> he would always try and get them to cash a check. And um, I had a joke. I was, only, I was only like 17, but I would go, um, who's this? And the bouncers would go, I don't know who. And I go, it's Norman with a check in his pocket. <laughs> And um, he would come into work still drunk from the night before, you know. And when you're 17, this is amazing. This, is, this guy should be doing King Lear or he should be doing, you know, things pull, fall apart or something at the National Theatre. And he's doing a sitcom and he's, he's having problems in his life and he's drinking too much. And he was coming into work absolutely still pissed from the night before. And this one day, he went in the wrong room and Elaine stretched, you know Elaine Stretch? She was in a show called Two's Company, this New York broad. She was in a show with Donald Sinden, and they were having their script reading, and Norman crawled into the room and crawled under the table right underneath Elaine Stritch. And she said, Mr. Beaton, I can see you're drunk. And he said, I can see your body all. <laughs> and I had to drag him out of there. I can see your body hole. It sounds ruder in Caribbean, I don't know why. <laughs> it does. All of those Jamaican swears are, you know, I was really surprised that rasclart and bumbaclart is toilet paper. It just doesn't sound the same in English. When you, I want a rasclart, you go, <laughs> I want a bumbaclart. You know, if there's a, what, what in the name of toilet paper? It doesn't sound right. Toilet paper off you, toilet paper. Doesn't sound right. But um, Norman basically shepherded me through the whole thing of being on telly and taught me a lot. And then 
Rudolph Walker, I met him, he was brilliant. Love Rudolph. And Isabel Lucas, Carmen Monroe, she, she said, get training, learn how to sing, have voice classes, movement classes, because you're gonna need it. And because I wanted new faces and was basically on a jolly, thinkingly, you know, I was 17 and had money in my pocket, going out to Gulliver's and Crackers and all these people, the gold mine. I was going to all these places and having a wonderful time as a 17, 18 year old kid. I didn't listen and, and I really wish I had done. Um, and Norman's the one who said, um, what we need, Banner, is our own broadcast network. We need to make our own things for we, and then if they want to buy it, they can buy it, but we will make it for we, for our own consumption, and then we won't feel like we got to go capping on to these people. And um, I said, well, Norman, do we really want to be, that's like being at the kids' table over there. Don't we want to be at the big table with the grown-ups? Man, you don't know what you're talking about. Shut up. And um, all these years later, I do think now that perhaps there should be separate funding for a BAME network. Like, like they do, I do think that now. Like BET mm. in America, um, you know, just a separate broadcast network, public, publicly funded, because it's, we're 15% of this country and we are not represented on television in the way that we should do, both more so on screen, but that's a kind of sop to diversity. The, the, where real diversity and representation needs to get done is behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, the decision makers, the gatekeepers, the people who green light things. That's where you need to see more people that look like us behind there. Because unless you, unless you have that, you don't know whether you're getting a fair deal or not because it's always those 12 guys who went to Oxbridge together making the decisions about everything. Mm. And, you know, they have a, such a weird view of the world, those guys. It's very skewed. View. They should stick to being prime minister, basically. But, you know, we need, we, need, we need more inclusion. It should be everybody at that table, not just one and two people from Oxbridge. I think everybody on the bus or nobody at all. Yeah. Everybody in the bus, and by the way, we want to help, we want to plan the des destination of where the bus is going, and we want to sit where we like, and we want to get off where we want, and then get back on where we want, and we want to be on that bus. Everybody or not at all. I think it's admirable, because I was just... I think, it's, I think it's admirable because I was all in favour of diversity until I was in and then I wanted to shut the doors and, 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 and sort of maintain my USP, yeah. do you know what I mean? I don't yeah, want any yeah, other you don't want anybody else messing yeah, up your shit. other brown pricks. No, no, no it's just me, it's just me up in here. <laughs> That's it for this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the South Bank Centre Books podcast in all the usual places. For more information about upcoming events, go to southbankcentre.co.uk or look us up on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. <laughs>